This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents the American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theater. This seminar, producing. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These seminars are but one of the many programs at the Wing's all-year-round programs. We bring live, wonderful magic of theatre to children at public schools through our Saturday Theatre for Children program. We bring the magic of theatre live and professional again, Broadway and off-Broadway, to hospitals and institutions, to those who cannot come out and see it. And this program, which is devoted to working in the theater, is one of the most important of the WINGS programs. For here, we have brought in our series the performer, the playwright, the composer, the director, and now we have what really enables people to work in the theater, the production team, those that make it possible for the, everyone to get a job in the theater and to bring the magic to the audience of theater. Today's program is based on the production of Hurley Burley, how it came from Chicago to Off-Broadway and to Broadway. And on our, our panel today, we have not only Brendan Gill, member <coughs> of the board of the American Theatre Wing, critic and author, and Jean Dalrymple, its co-moderator, and member of the board, and author, and director, and producer as well. <laughs> But we're also represented by the two very important sides of what makes working in the theater possible. The agent, Milton Goldman, who is also a member of the board of the American Theater Wing, and Jay Harris, lawyer, member of the board of the American Theater Wing. And I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I am president of that prestigious and distinguished board of directors. And so thank you very much for being here, and we're going to get on immediately with the production of Hurley Burley. Thank you. Brendan? Yes. Uh, on my far right is uh, Milton Goldman. Uh, there's a saying, you know, that a celebrity is somebody who is famous for being well-known. Uh, <laughs> Milton is, is a celebrity. He is famous. He is well-known. And moreover, he is remarkable for the fact that he seems to know the name of every single person he's ever met in his <laughs> life. He is simply uncanny. Uh, next to uh, Milton is, is Fred Zello, the producer of Hurley Burley and co-producer of Ma Rainey's uh, Black Bottom, and uh, also of uh, hitherto on Broadway, of Night Mother, and on Golden Pond, and Almost an Eagle. And uh, next uh, to Fred, at my immediate right, is Peter Lawrence, the stage manager of uh, Hurley Burley, who has also, uh, among his credits on Broadway, have Zorba, Rock and Roll, the first, David Copperfield, and the suicide, that seems a strange order of being. Uh, <laughs> and uh, among other things, that this uh, 
card tells me is that he was at least once upon a time the drama critic for the Honolulu Advertiser. <laughs> there is a distinction. <laughs> uh, my far left is Ray Harris of the American Theatre Wing and our distinguished uh, attorney, volunteer for the American Theatre Wing who helps us out of many pickles. And next to him is Sandra Manning. Uh, she's with the Bill Evans and Associates Publicity Office and they do all the publicity for Hurley Burley. And before that, she was a director and was at the uh, Yale Drama School directing very well and very successfully. She came to New York to get a job and her first job was in a publicity office with a very distinguished uh, publicity director, Harvey Sabinson. And she learned that trade and now she's with Bill Evans and they are publicists for Hurley Burley. And next to me is this uh, very nice young man, <laughs> Rick Ellis, and he wants you all to know that he spells his name E-L-I-C-E, -E, <laughs> not E-double-L-I-S. <laughs> and he's a <laughs> assistant creative director of the advertising, and he's with the firm of Sereno, Coyne, and Nappi. And now I think we'll ask Milton what he's doing here. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question, Stephen. I was pressed into service yesterday, late yesterday afternoon because the regular panelist, who I assume had some involvement with the production of Hurley Burley, had to cancel. And so as a member, a good member of the American Theatre Wing, Isabel Stevenson had her secretary call me and ask if I would come in to fill out the panel. I have to add to that. Nobody ever has to say, what are you doing here to Milton Goldman? <laughs> Thank you. There's a reason for Milton being any place and every place. Thank you, Isabel. There you are. What a challenge. We're, we're supposedly talking about the production of, of, of a given work of art from its earliest inception. And I don't know which of you is best able to tell me uh, what is the earliest moment on record of Hurley Burley. Uh, Fred, for example, did you know that uh, David Ray was writing this play a long time ago? Did you hear about it from Mike Nichols, or how did you hear about it? Um, I've known David for about 10 years. In fact, I did a play of David's in 1977, which was the first play that I produced, which was called The Basic Training of Pablo Hummel. And after that time, David and I became very good friends. In fact, we lived about three or four blocks from each other. And we fiddled around with another of his plays called Goose and Tom Tom that eventually was done in a production at the Public Theater. And I only thought that he was writing screenplays and had stopped writing plays. I knew he was still writing, but nothing he wanted to show anyone. And it was January, I believe, of 1983 when I ran into him in a bar and he said that um, he had indeed written a new play. And in fact, had told my assistant about it and she said, you have to see this new play here. It's wonderful. And so I called him up and I said, hey, you have a new play. And he said, I do, but I'm not going to show it to you. And I said, fine, you don't have to show it to me. He said, well, I'll show it to you, but you can't produce it. I said, fine, <laughs> I don't have to produce it. He said, all right, if you want to produce it, you know, you'll have to wait because I'm really busy and I'm doing a lot of things. I've gotten Hollywood out of my system. He'd written a number of screenplays and had a very bad experience there, which is, I guess, the history of the American writer, is to have a bad experience in Hollywood. <laughs> and so he said, but I'm writing very well now, and get, to get involved in a production of a play this, of this length uh, would destroy my concentration. So I said, fine, don't give it to me, and I don't want to talk to you, and we'll see you later. 
So the next day he came over and gave it to me, and it was about, <laughs> it was about 250 pages long, which is short for David. And so I said, yeah, this is, this is long. And, I, and he suggested that I use it for a doorstop and left. And so I read it. Actually, I was not the first person to read it. Uh, my dearest friend, Barbara Ligeti, read it first in her dentist chair and was howling, and everyone thought with pain, and she was actually <laughs> laughing. It was a very, it's a very funny play. So I read it, and I said, this is a very funny play. He said, you can't produce it, and leave me alone. And a month later, he called and said, why don't we produce the play? At that time, it was untitled. So we said, who's going to direct it? And there were two names that came immediately to mind. It was Mike Nichols, but he was immediately taken off the list because um, he's asked to do everything and does nothing. So we said, Nichols is up. Of course, <laughs> David had worked with Nichols in the last new play, uh, Streamers. So then he, we thought of Robert Altman because David had just done a film with Altman of, of Streamers. And we kicked that around a little bit. But then we said, why don't we send it to Nichols? And we laughed and said, you know, he'll read it and say no. And, but maybe he can do it in a six, we'd give him six weeks to say no, which for Mike was a short time. <laughs> so we sent it to Nichols. And about six weeks later, he said, yeah, well, I'm real busy and everything, but why don't we do a reading? which an immediate warning light went off on both of our, our parts because we'll go through another six weeks of arranging a reading, then Mike will say no. So, but we did it and we arranged this wonderful reading, which Sigourney, in fact, was one of the readers. And Judith mm -hmm. Ivey was one and Peter Weller read and George Zunza and it was a terrific reading. And Nichols couldn't stop laughing and after the reading, which occurred in May, May of 1983, he said, I'll do this play, but I'm not sure when, where, or how. I have a picture to finish, I have another picture to do, I have the real thing to do, and I'm a real busy guy, and I'm important, and I'll see when I can fit this five-hour play in. And so we said, okay, and we fiddled around for the summer trying to cast the play, sort of, until we finally tied Mike down and threatened his life and said, we have to have a date. We can't cast the play without a date. And so he said, fine, we'll do it in the beginning of the year, and I, w I don't want to do it in New York. And that's when we, after a long series of conversations, we came up with the Goodman Theater as a possible place to do the play. Um, and in fact, they agreed, Goodman agreed, in about, I think, three or four seconds. Um, yeah. I said, Mike Nichols wants to do a new David Ray play. I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we want you to give us all the money, and you, know, you probably won't be able to say anything about it. And Gregory Moshe laughed. He said, okay. Although he became very integral to the production, as we, we knew he would be. So then we tried to cast the play, and at that point, Mike was talking about Nicholson playing Eddie, which we all knew was, was a silly idea in that Nicholson would never do a stage play, although he'd be perfect as Eddie. But it looked as if, for a time, he was going to do it. But then his film schedule changed, as we all expected, and we were left without the center of the play, and we, after a little bit of an argument, uh, we all agreed that Hurt which should be our first choice, and we sent him the script in Brazil, where he was making a movie, and he said yes and then everything began to fall into place. Um, Sigourney agreed, Judy Ivey agreed, Mike wanted Cynthia Nixon, was willing to pull her out of the real thing to, to get her, so we had the women, we had Bill. Uh, Ron Silver was going to play Mickey, a role that was written for Ron. Uh, we thought first of a couple of actors and then went to Jerry Stiller very quickly for Artie's role, and he said yes. So we had, the, had our company, with the exception of Phil, and we played around with that for a little while, and finally, uh, out of nowhere, Harvey Keitel appeared and read, and we said, he's Phil. So a week before we were going to go into rehearsal, we got a call saying that Ron Silver was about to be cast in Sidney Lumet's new movie and what we were going to do about it, because I mean, we were about to go into rehearsal. And, uh, 
we decided to let Ron go. It was his first major starring role in a picture, and so he, that very month, had turned down Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross to do Hurley Burley, and now he's going to leave Hurley Burley to do this film by Lumet. So we were left without a Mickey, and that's when we called on our friend Christopher Walken and said, will you do it? And he amazingly, miraculously said yes. And that was the original company. And we went to Chicago. There was an extraordinary series of negatives to begin with, <laughs> all of which added up to one of the biggest positives we've ever It's a miracle. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a, more than a miracle. I never expected, finally when we got the damn thing, and it, it is this beast. I mean, if you've seen Poltergeist, you know, the little kid opens the closet and his head comes out. Well, this, this, this beast has been living in my house for two years, and I'd open the closet and this thing would come out. And, you know, you, you, you don't want to open the closet again, but, like, you have to, because you really don't think it's there, and you peek in, and there's this thing. It's just been living there, this beast, for two years, and, and then it entered Mike's life and tried to destroy it, and uh, David's life and tried to destroy it, and all of the actors' lives, and it's just been around. And we finally got it to Chicago, and we played around there for six cold weeks. And we never thought it would come here. Did you say that the Goodman did it and put up all the money? Yeah. I nice think of them, that's huh? the miracle. <laughs> that well, was they had wonderful. wanted, they had wanted uh, to do a play with Mike for a long time. Gregory's wanted to do a play. And they are, in my opinion, the leading American regional theater because they are committed to new American plays mm -hmm. instead of a bunch of this English stuff. And they <laughs> the actor studio in Louisville to yeah. bring new American yeah, plays. Yes, they are. And go out and find them. Themselves. They do indeed, and the Goodman does, and the Taper to an extent. But in the last, I think, five or six years, the uh, the Goodman has been a major force. It does a lot of revivals of classics. Mm -hmm. The Goodman in their main stage in the oh, larger theater. Well, they knew in a sense did casting and editing and everything else right at, right at the very beginning. You, you, we were blessed with the presence. At first, a, again, a negative presence, and then later, the most positive presence we could have with Mike Milton's, Nichols, oh, with Mike Sam and Cohen. with Milton's comrade in arms, uh, Sam Cohn, who uh, <laughs> said it was the greatest play since Long Day's Journey Tonight, but it will never come to New York. <laughs> and I said, "Well, Sam, maybe it will come to New York." He said, it "Will never come here. <laughs> They'll never why, sit for it." Why did he say that? He thought that it was long and difficult and painful and that it was meant to be done elsewhere and that... It, that it still is very... Right. That is true. It, 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 it is a one-act play, <coughs> Brendan, compared to what it was. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But now, who, <laughs> who, worked, who worked all uh, the, the, the uh, shortening to the degree which is, has to be short? The cutting? Yeah, who did all that? Well, that was, that was Nichols. Yeah, was Mike Nichols. Nichols and yeah. We ended up having, and I think Peter, this was the perfect place for Peter to come in because when... Peter became involved uh, when we, we rehearsed here in New York. That was the beginning of the uh, first series of, um, of wars uh, to cut the play and to bring it into some size and shape. And um, it became a battle between David and Mike. And I would sort of attempt to referee it. Then I would hand over those duties to uh, Peter, <laughs> who did a much better job than I did. Because I would actually uh, cause even more fights because I would tend to have my own opinions, which weren't terribly useful. And what was useful is to try to bring the two of them together so that they could do their work. Mm -hmm. What did you have for a title before it was Hurley Burley? How many titles? Well, it was the untitled have? play. There were several dozen titles, but <laughs> the, there was an announced title. We, he decided to call it Spinoff, um, which, in fact, the title Hurley Burley and, and the title Spinoff are, are words that are juxtaposed in the mm -hmm. script. Yeah. It's a spinoff of primetime life, this Hurley Burley. And... Um, he wanted to call it um, when the Hurley Burley's done, 
which is a line from Macbeth. I think it's the third line. From it's three and a half hours now, isn't it? From the Scottish tragedy. Exactly. Am I supposed to turn around now and turn outside the room, turn around, throw <laughs> yeah. salt over my shoulder? Yeah. No. We had to deal with this problem because every time we talked about Hurley Burley, someone said, "What's Hurley Burley?" Well, <laughs> it's this thing from that play. <laughs> it's one of the sillier theatrical customs that there's something wrong with that yeah. play. And so every time you say the title of that play, <laughs> and so we had a bunch of actors jumping up and down, putting salt over their backs, and looking like total morons. Anyway, finally we, we went from spin-off to Hurley Burley. Mike said, I won't, I won't agree to when the Hurley Burley's done, and just call it Hurley Burley. If it was up to Mike, it would have been called Burley. <laughs> or Burl. <laughs> but he likes one word titles, you know, it's just no fooling around. You know, so. <laughs> uh, it came out as early work. Yeah. Before we title. get to Chicago, where did Jay come in? Where does well, Jay was, come in in this? Jay was in it very early. Uh, in fact, it was, uh, Jay, I had known Jay prior to this time, but I was represented by another attorney who shall remain nameless. And um, <laughs> I met Jay, in fact, at the nominations for the Tony Awards in, what, 1986 <laughs> again, um, when I was nominated for Night Mother, uh, where we were robbed. And um, <laughs> anyway, I saw Jay there and I said, I'm doing this play and it probably will never come off and I'd like you to, to rep represent me. And so we started in the impossible task and without, Jay must have written 2,000 contracts before we even got to a place where anyone was being willing to agree. Sam Cohen used to make a joke about the contracts coming across his desk and he said, no one's going to sign any of these contracts. Is that normal? No. <laughs> <laughs> normal, it's very abnormal. As soon as we got involved and, and Fred told me that the play was going to Chicago, I said, okay, let's get everything ready because if it comes to New York, and the schedule was that it would go into rehearsal sometime in January, it would go to Chicago, I think at the end of February, it would run six weeks there, and then it would be brought right into New York. I said, well, if that's the schedule is, we better get to work and get papers ready so that uh, all the contracts are tied up, and Mike's got a contract as director, and David's got his contract as the author, and there are partnership papers so the money can be raised. And where is it going to go, Broadway or Off-Broadway? Sam Cohen said he didn't know where. Fred didn't know where it was going to go. At that time, they weren't sure it was going to go anywhere. And Sam Cohen kept saying, well, I don't want to have anybody sign any papers because Mike doesn't know if he's going to be available to, to bring it right into town right after it plays Chicago. So let's put off all the papers. And, and was, well, we can't really put off all the papers because we've got to be in a position to accept money to bring the show in. Well, we'll do that then. So we, Fred and I were kind of uncomfortable with this whole situation that suddenly at the last minute we're going to manufacture papers and, and these things have to be cleared sometimes with the Securities and Exchange Commission and sometimes with the Attorney General's office in New York and you can't just do things at the last minute unless you have four or five investors, which luckily it turns out this is what happened. But Sam just wouldn't you know, nobody could do anything, and in fact, when the play opened in Chicago, nothing at all was signed that I had seen. There was no contract with the author, no contract with the director. <laughs> Fred didn't have an option on the play. <laughs> there was no way to accept any money. Fortunately, the Goodman Theater put up the money for its production, and gradually things started to fall into place, and the decision was made to, to do it off-Broadway. So my office did up all the papers to do it off-Broadway. Money was raised in about three minutes. 
everybody wanted to get into the, into the act on this play once it had opened in Chicago. Anybody who heard anything about this play wanted to be a producer, co-producer. So we finally got all the papers done, endless negotiations, because there was going to be a little twist to this one. This was going to have a profit pool, which in the past couple of seasons has now started to, to get very popular, and every producer wants to do it, and all the backers want to do it. And that is that the author, director, designers, producer, nobody gets royalties. Everything goes into a profit pool after break even, and then everybody shares so that the investors start to get their money back sooner. And if, in fact, the show is not successful, it can be run at a much lower cost than if, it, if, than if everyone was getting royalties. For example, the show is, if the show can break even at $100,000, and you have a royalty structure of 20%, you have another $20,000 that has to be paid, you don't break even until you get to $120,000. So if you're running at $100,000, you're running at a loss. If you have a profit pool and you're running at $100,000, you're breaking even, and you can keep going forever like that. Anyway, that's what one of the things that this play had. So we did all the off-Broadway papers in about a week. And as soon as we got the off-Broadway papers done, the endless meetings with the author who didn't want to accept a profit pool right away and didn't want to do some of the other things. Before we knew it, the play had opened off-Broadway, it was a big hit, and it was going to move to Broadway. All the papers had to be redone to do that. <laughs> so exactly what we feared, which was that everything would have to be done at the last minute, everything was done at the last minute for both productions. How many producers are there? Well, there's Fred and Mike, and there's Ivan Block, and Susan, ERB Productions, and, Susan Rice, and, and, yeah. and Bill Suter. Yeah. And Bill Suter, who's in I think this production is illustrative of what is happening to productions on Broadway. This began, as we just heard, at the Goodman Theater, then came to the Promenade Theater, and then came to Broadway. Fred was associated with another production, Night Mother, which began at the Actors <coughs> Theater in Louisville, John Jory's company, went to Harvard Repertory Company, where Frank Rich saw it and gave it a rave notice, and then it was brought into town on the basis of that notice, I should think. And that is happening more and more because costs are so enormous to produce directly for Broadway, and then risk being cut down by one newspaper, the New York Times, that regional theater has become a much more important tryout place for the big musicals, which can't go to the regional theaters because of the costs. They now have workshops where they all start. Chorus Line started that way. And Mike Bennett, Michael Bennett's new production, Scandals, is beginning that way. Uh, Nine began that way, the Tommy Tuna workshop. And that is happening more and more, and it's the only way the theater can possibly survive the rising cost of production. Fred's just done it again with uh, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, uh, which started at uh, the Yale Repertory Theater. Mm -hmm. Now, what is the inducement to the uh, playwright to consent to the profit pool uh, instead of a royalty? Why does he give? Because if the production can run at a lower cost, <coughs> and if, in fact, the reviews are not all raves and the box office is slow, his play can run longer. And if he doesn't cooperate, then, then uh, you could have a situation where yeah. the play could close prematurely because yeah. there's not so enough he, money he, to keep it going. So he gambles on, on, on getting a fair run, which is what he really right. wants yes. for a lot of reasons right. besides money. And this is also mm -hmm. very, very attractive to the investors, and in fact, this, this whole arrangement is kind of amazing. The, the, the play was capitalized at off, for Off-Broadway at $400,000, which is expensive for Off-Broadway, but 
compared to what it costs to put a play on Broadway now, it's not expensive. It was so successful off-Broadway that it was able to move to Broadway using part of the profits from off-Broadway and a deal with the Schubert's so that the investors didn't have to lay out any more money. It wasn't necessary to bring any more investors in. And in fact, this play, which has only been open about two months, is in the black already, <coughs> on Broadway, in the black, yeah. with that cast and that director, <coughs> and it's amazing. Yes. And that's, that's, what, that's what Fred did. How many productions would you say are using this profit uh, pool? Are there many? That I know three of them offhand, and mm -hmm. in fact, four of them. I think Lacage is on a, on a profit pool. The real thing is on a profit pool, and Ma Rainey's on a profit pool. I'll never do, a, do another play Sunday without one. How do you feel about also? it as an agent? Don't you think that makes sense? I think it does. Mm -hmm. I think it enables the theater to survive. Mm -hmm. What about the Dramatist Guild and all that? Are they all consenting to they, it? They agree to it. They like it. In fact, the, the way it works is if it, it, the closer that Hurley Burley comes mm -hmm. to being a sellout, the more equalized it becomes to what the royalties would have been paid. So that the author, in effect, in effect is getting his royalty now because the show is doing well. But the lower the, as the grosses go down, the, the, the backers get the benefit. So that it's, it's really a good inducement for backers and very good for producers and, and it's very good for authors. It's good for everybody to, to take so. that risk mm -hmm. and not to, yeah. not to try to take too much out of a production too early until until it's up on its feet and running. Mm -hmm. Because you, life you, is the most important thing to a play. Are you, uh, the, uh, are you as an attorney arrange the, the division of the pool, how that split works? Well, in this case, it was uh, kind of the ingenuity of Sam Cohn and Fred that put the numbers together. Yeah. Um, I carried it out, and we all carried it out, but, but Fred and Sam came up with what percentage should go to the actors, what percentage to the theater, what percentage to the, to the royalty participants, including the author, director, and so forth. Hurley um, Burley is rather uh, an unusual setup in that all the actors are stars. I mean, you have eight. Do you have eight, there eight seven, in the company? Seven, seven, seven. Seven, and they're all on a par, pretty there much, with each other. There is an eight. Mike Nichols, and yeah. he's also a star. <laughs> but they're on a par with each other. Whereas, if you did a play with a major star and try to use this profit pool thing, and there were subordinate actors, you would have to negotiate. The agent would have to negotiate the percentage each actor would get of the profit pool, so it would vary. In some cases, the actors are not put in the pool, though. Normally, they're not. They normally pay their salaries, whatever mm -hmm. they are. Uh, we do have them in their own pool, so that reduces the weekly operating night. Mm -hmm. uh, it's important to remember, though, that until about, I mean, plays could operate until, I would say, the late 50s and early 60s on Broadway, when plays were done on Broadway, um, for 10000 a week, $12,000 a week. The well, dramas. More than that. Not in the early 60s. It I mean, even $20,000 a week. More than that. No, about but 40. It was about 40 or 50. About 40 but let's, 50. Say that, let's say the play was doing $50,000 mm -hmm. a week, which was a good gross for a play in the late 50s. The playwright would be receiving four or $5,000 a week mm -hmm. based on his 10%. 10% um, today of a hit like sure. Real Thing or Hurley Burley means twenty-five dollars or $30,000 a week. So suddenly the, that 10% ratio is somewhat out of whack with the Well, except the, the inflation. Well, between the 50s that's and That's considerable now. inflation to $120,000 a month, Milton. <laughs> but but before there was a profit pool, the producer would have to go around and ask everybody to waive royalties, which was a nightmarish thing to have to do. The playwright would, would be the first one to go to because the playwright's got the largest royalty. The standard playwright on, on Broadway, the, the standard royalty is a 10% royalty. So 
You'd go to the playwright first, and he would waive his royalties. Then you'd go to the director, and you'd have to, you'd have to go to the, the director's union. And the director's union was very reluctant to let the directors waive royalties. And, and you'd have to negotiate with the union, you'd have to negotiate with the director's agent, and you'd have to work out <coughs> very special formulas. Usually, the designers would be on a, on a flat amount, so they didn't have a royalty. So you, you couldn't ask them <coughs> to waive that. The producer would waive, so that the burden of, of giving up money to keep a play going would fall solely on the producer and on the playwright, and in some cases the theater would, would, would go along with it. So that by doing a profit pool, it, it really evens out everything, and it's, it's, a, it's a big team effort, and to have it all set up before you go into production on a play is to give um, the producer a good deal of confidence and, and a lot more leeway in keeping a production open if it's in trouble to start with. On the other side of it, too. Now everybody's making money on Hurley Burley. Yeah. Now everybody's happy. Even on the labor union side of it, Actors' Equity is now getting involved in, uh, in profit pooling, sort of actively promoting it. Um, I did a workshop about a year and a half ago of a show called Smile, which didn't work out, and it's now being restructured to come in, and I just got a profit pooling arrangement from Equity. Because on a workshop, as I think everybody knows, the cast gets 1% of the gross for the show forever. And um, now equity is working out a way to put that 1% of the gross into the profit pooling as well, again, mm -hmm. with, with an eye to keeping the nut down and so the show can run longer and obviously spawn more companies. Mm -hmm. In the case of Hurley Burley, isn't this about the time you brought the publicity people in? Well, actually, we always knew we would use um, Evans. Rick's firm, Serena Coin and Nappy, and we, we... Oh, the advertising. Mike is very fond of, of Bill and Sandy, and um, I knew them but had never worked with them before, primarily because I always felt they were vassals of Manny Eisenberg. And as much as I admire and like Manny Eisenberg, I said, you know, they're in Manny's office doing stuff for Manny. And like, you know, I'm going to come in there and say, oh, we're too busy because Manny has 15 shows this season and 12 Neil Simon plays and like, you know, we'll catch you later. So I said to Mike, you know, they're doing the real thing, they're doing the odd couple, they're doing, you know, the Neil Simon story, they're too busy. And he said, no, they're great. And we, we have to let them do this. We, and so I finally went along reluctantly. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made because they've done it more than an extraordinary job. Because with a play like this, it needed to be positioned in a way where it, it, people would read about it and not learn too much, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It, it, it couldn't be revealed in a certain way. Nor could it have all this stupid sort of New York Post sense sensational publicity of Bill Hurt caught with his pants down at Elaine's type of thing. It needed a very subtle touch, but yet it needed uh, the, the first class kind of publicity. And what Bill and Sandy and Jim in their office have done is given us that. I mean, I accuse Bill of being an associate editor of the New York Times because every time I pick up the New York Times, we were reading a piece on Hurley Burley or The Real Thing or now Whoopi Goldberg, which mm -hmm. they represent. And I'm sure eight or nine of Manny's shows will get ample play in the New York Times. And so they've done an extraordinary job. They came, both the agency, the Serena Cody Nappy and Bill and Sandy came on while we were in Chicago, uh, or just as we were going to Chicago. And they really set the stage for whatever would happen. And they did months and months of work with no knowledge the play would ever emerge. What's the percentage of the budget for advertising? What, do, you, do you establish that at the very beginning? Well, there's a, a pre-opening budget that's established and set by the 
producers, mm -hmm. uh, which is an arbitrary figure depending on how much they've raised and want to spend. And then uh, as soon as the play opens, there is a running operating budget uh, that is substantially less, uh, but is spent on a weekly basis for outdoor advertising, print advertising, like the, the three-sheet or um, window cards, subway posters, um, Long Island Railroad, that sort of thing, um, print, uh, which is newspapers and magazines, and uh, broadcast, radio and television. How much for radio and television of that whole budget? Well, Hurley Burley uh, did not do any radio advertising uh, before it opened. Uh, it was all played very close to the table because uh, it was an unknown commodity. And uh, the star power and uh, the names of Rabe and Nichols were enough to uh, warrant business at the Promenade Theater that uh, uh, precluded the necessity of uh, radio advertising or television, which obviously is much more expensive than radio is. Um, uh, we went on radio with a quote spot right after it opened at the Promenade Theater uh, about uh, not about the fact that the show was a hit, but about the fact that on August 9th the show would begin playing on Broadway at the Barrymore Theater. And uh, uh, advertising, of course, is best when it only does one thing. It was not uh, that Hurley Burley is a big new hit. Uh, the message should always be clear, and this message was this big hit is now going to be playing on Broadway and no longer at the 300-seat Promenade Theater. So if you've been one of the people who've been trying to get tickets, thanks to Bill Evans and Sandy Manley doing a great job on publicity, um, and you haven't been able to get them because there's only 300 seats in the theater, then you can relax because after August 9th you'll get a chance. Uh, we, are, uh, we are now on the air with a, a Stiller and Mirror uh, radio spot uh, because now the cast is beginning to change. And uh, this particular spot deals with the fact that Candace Bergen has now replaced Sigourney Weaver. Um, it lends itself to a series as different people in the company come and go uh, back and forth to uh, Hollywood to make films. And uh, the whole notion of where the stars are uh, is hurly-burly. Uh, this is where the stars stay in New York is now the basis of our campaign. Um, the play at first got a lot of play. But when you're, uh, when you're dealing with advertising, again, what you try to latch onto is what they call the unique selling proposition. What's unique about Hurley Burley is that it's David Rabe's first play in a long time. Mike Nichols has directed it, and it's got William Hurt, <laughs> Cynthia Nixon, Judith Ivey, Harvey Keitel, Ron Silver, Candace Bergen, and Jerry Stiller in it. And that's the only play that can say that. Uh, what's, uh, there's one other point I want, just want to make about the profit. Uh, the profit for dollars game, which is uh, uh, that it gives the publicity and the advertising people an edge too. The, uh, what it, what it, what, what's great for all of us about this profit plan is that it keeps the shows running longer. It gets more people in to see them. There's no point in doing a play if it's going to be playing to a lot of empty seats. Now what publicity does for free and what advertising does for, for cost is to get people into those seats, but it doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes it can take 10 days, sometimes it can take two weeks of a, of a heavy radio blitz or some great feature stories in, in national magazines or the New York Times. Sometimes it might take a little bit longer. No matter what happens with the advertising or the publicity, the word of mouth must always keep up with the advertising or the publicity. And so what the profit plan does is it keeps the show open longer, gets more people in to see it, the word of mouth gets around, 
And the word of mouth is always the bottom line. The advertising can be great and the publicity can be sensational, but if the show is no good, eventually that's what's going to be on the street. But the show, in spite of it all, is no good. Hurley Burley, that's not the, case. not the case. Sandra, I think you should tell us about the publicity now. It must not have been too difficult with all those names and Mike Nichols and that's absolutely and it. And so from forth. from our point of view, it's analogous to being asked to be the jockey on a very very good horse. And from the moment that um, Fred chose Bill's office to handle it, uh, Bill read the script and then Bill gave me the script and said, "Take it home and read it." And the script, the manuscript, which was untitled and unbound, was about this thick. And I took it home thinking that it would take. I didn't know how I'd read it, and I started it that evening when I got home from work, and I didn't stop until I'd finished it. And I knew that no matter what happened, even if it never came to New York, that I wanted to work on it, um, as did Bill, because it's a very good script. And then, coupled with the fact that it was directed by Mike Nichols and that it had those actors connected to it, and that Fred had a very clear vision of what this play was and how to market it, we were in the position that Jay was when Fred put the figures together. We executed that. Um, being the publicist on something like this, you obviously don't have to twist anybody's arm to do any publicity. From the media point of view, it's more a question of not burning any bridges. Because on a play that is a long run, those people that you might not especially well, first of all, at the promenade, because the seating was so limited, we were not able to accommodate all the media people to start. Uh, the lists for the first, second, and third night, critics, I mean, we speak of them as critics. They include editors. They include reporters. Um, it includes a wide variety of people. But the point is that if you run, ultimately, you want all of those people to see the show and make a judgment about it and hopefully have their support. And at the promenade, we were, not, we were obviously not going to be able to accommodate all those people the way that we normally do. So the, the whole production had to be prepared to accommodate a spread of critics, which even on Broadway is not uncommon, which means that they don't all come on opening night. Opening night is really the night after which the reviews run. Um, so we had to be prepared for that. We specifically had to deal with the fact, as I say, that we couldn't take care of everyone at once. And our job was to explain to those people that they were not less important, um, that they didn't matter any less, but to find reasons that were diplomatic and that truly conveyed why we couldn't get them all into the theater in time. And as a matter of fact, we weren't sure that it would move to Broadway. And it, it's, it's also, one hesitates to misinterpret things and also to lead people to expect things that won't happen. So it was a very delicate sort of cakewalk that we were doing about it. But the ultimate answer is that the play delivered. And for those people who were fortunate enough of the media to be able to see it at the promenade, um, they spread the word again among the, media, the other media people. So when it moved to Broadway, we were very careful to accommodate those people whom we hadn't you know, given access to it in the first place. And they continue to come in. In the life of the show, the, the beautiful part is when you can stretch that sort of coverage, because there are reviewers from all over the country who come in now. And we get phone calls every day from reviewers from major cities in America and also in Europe who want to review the show. And we have an eye to uh, Fred's plans for the future with it, because there are rights for other countries. The play will clearly have a life. And it's our job to do everything we can do to enhance not only the Broadway run of the play, which is immediate, but everything that will be subsequent for the play. But as I say, it's, it's infinitely different to do this 
than it is to work on a number of other things that have come <laughs> up in my life. And it really is, it's beautiful. I can't, I can't tell you what it feels like yes. from this position. We're about to take a break now. When we come back, we'll have questions and answers in a second. This is the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. We are continuing today's panel with the production. Hurley Burley, that wonderful show on Broadway now. But what brought it to Broadway? It, we were trying to unravel from option to opening from the uh, theater, the Goodman Theater in Chicago, the Promenade Theater, and to Broadway. All the steps that it took, and in some form or other, some of the money that it took in order to bring to Broadway this wonderful play. We're going to continue with our panel now with Brendan Gill and Jean Dalrymple co-moderating the group of people that made Hurley Burley possible to be seen by everyone. I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I'm president of the American Theatre Wing. Thank you for being here. And now we'll continue. I feel as if we had been neglecting Peter <laughs> here, uh, or whether his natural shyness, reticence, or something has caused him not to be uh, asked as many questions as he should have been. I mean, the first question I wanted to know was, how early on did you enter the, this uh, picture. I came on relatively late. I came on about two weeks before the rehearsals began. I got a call from Peter Neufeld, who's the general manager of the show, asking me if I would like to meet Mike Nichols about a new play. <laughs> well, so I said, sure, can I read the play first? And uh, I went down to pick up the play, and at that point, the play you that I got... said that? <laughs> so I went down to pick up the play, and it was, it was in a shopping bag at that point. And so I took it home and first assembled the pages, and it took me, I guess, four hours or so to read the play the first time, and I had no idea at the first time through what I was reading, and I thought, I've got to get a handle on this play before I meet Mike. So I read it through twice more and then went over to, uh, to meet Mike, who couldn't have been more cordial or wonderful, and um, we talked about the play. I said I thought it was funny. And I had no idea other than that what I thought the play was about. And he said he wasn't sure either. <laughs> so so uh, he offered me the job. And we wanted to rehearsal about two weeks later. And I, the best time, I think, for this show, and I think that anybody who was associated with the show would agree, was that we had six weeks of, of rehearsal at the Manhattan Theater Club. And then we had six weeks in Chicago, which was just terrific. Because it was uh, Fred, Mike, David, and the actors and me. And we had to go down with this play. The first reading of this play was four hours and 45 minutes long. This is no intermissions, no nothing. No laughs at that point. And um, so it's now two hours and 45 minutes. So the whole process of bringing the show to first to off-Broadway and then to Broadway was paring away very, very selectively what needed to be pared away in the play. And Mike, not only David, but Mike was very protective of this material from the beginning. The only block we took a scene out at the very beginning because both uh, Mike and David at the time felt that it, the play could, uh, could continue on pretty nicely without it. And then we just shaved speech by speech by speech and finally got down to, uh, you know, to taking two hours out of the show. But even in Chicago, when we were in Chicago working, we would perform the show every night and then we would rehearse it every day and we all lived in the same hotel. So we talked about nothing but the play and did nothing but the play for the six very cold weeks in Chicago and ended up with the, you know, the present size of the material that we have now. You say you came in relatively late. As professionally, do you ordinarily come in earlier to a thing, or are you always hired at about the same time? Usually period? it's much earlier. For instance, mm -hmm. it's about six months is the lead time on most shows that I'm doing now. 
that a show, an offer will come along, and then six months later, the show will finally begin to happen. But just because of the casting, casting is now done generally almost six months ahead on, for instance, big musicals, yeah. because it gives, of course, the producers time to negotiate properly with the actors. <laughs> but there's nothing for you to do in that six months. There is. There's is quite it? a bit, yeah. Oh, there's, in hear? addition to the casting, um, and I'm usually heavily involved in the casting, um, you start right away working on the set. And, um, and the clothes, the props, you start working out rehearsal spaces, and there are just sort of endless meetings about what final shape the show is going to take. So that by the time it goes into rehearsal, especially on musicals, this was not true on Hurley Burley, but especially on musicals, when you go into rehearsal, the shape of the show, the sort of architecture, um, is all set. And that, and that would happen uh, in the case of the Chicago, then coming east, uh, we were all wondering uh, why the decision was made, uh, if it was, this, it was a great success in Chicago, not to go to, straight to Broadway. Now, what was the, did, was that all talked about a lot out in Chicago? Or well, no? um, when we were in Chicago, we went back and forth with a decision of where to put the play. Um, it had received three notices in Chicago. Richard Christensen uh, liked the play very much. And again, we had not really wanted to have the critics in until at the end of the Chicago run, but they pestered us to a point where we were forced to, to allow them in. And we were only going to allow Glenna Sice and Richard Christensen, the two major critics of Chicago, to come and write on the play. Um, as it turned out, someone, some, a stringer from Variety snuck in and, and wrote a devastating review in Variety. But the two major notices were very interesting. And, and in fact, in my opinion, they were far too favorable because they, that was our fear. At the end of the process, it was okay to get favorable notices, but at the beginning, we wanted a situation where everything could remain in flux, everything could remain in doubt. This, uh, it, when Mike would say, let's remove this scene, David, tonight, just cut it out and see what it's like without it and put it back in the next night. And we wanted to have that sort of freedom. And once a critic comes in and says something good, bad, or indifferent, it freezes certain aspects of the script in someone's mind, whether it's the playwright or the producer or the, or the director or the stage manager or an actor. And it's a bad thing, in my opinion, in the, in, as part of this process. But anyway, they came in, they wrote their notices, and suddenly we had this thing that was now on the map. We wanted to make believe that it wasn't on the map, that it was some <laughs> unfound land, that it was... That's why we went there in the first place. We didn't want any critics, we didn't want any attention. We didn't get press. That was one of the things that Sandy and Bill did so well. They kept the press away from us. We wanted to do our work, and when they wrote about it, we couldn't anymore. So then the decision came, and Mike and I went back and forth be between the Royale or the Barrymore, Although we made a vow that we would not upset any current operating show on Broadway. We wouldn't be, go into the Schubert's and say to Bernie Jacobs or Jerry Schoenfeld, we want the Barrymore, uh, move baby, or force a show to close, because that's the theater we want. We would only go into a theater that was available. At that point, the Royale was the primary house. Uh, but Mike kept saying, and it was really, I said, Let, we can sell tickets. I think we can get the play ready. Let's go to the Barrymore or the Royale, whatever is available. He said, no, we need someplace else. We need a, a middle house. We need a safe house. We've we, we got to continue the process. That's what I want to do. And he wavered back and forth under my intense pressure. But in the end, he was very right about this. He, he said, it has to go someplace else. Mm -hmm. And so then we, we went around town and looked at 25 someplace else's <laughs> and found the Promenade Theater, which had been languishing there. And uh, it was a beautiful, wonderful theater. And, we said, okay, we'll put it there. And when it was there, I was so pleased with it there, and the way it played and the way uh, the business it was doing, I said, let's leave it alone. But of course, Mike then had his middle time, and he said, no, we're, now we go to the Barrymore. The Barrymore had become available at that point. Um, Ivan Block, who's the 
our co-producer here is the producer of Baby, and he finally decided to give up the ghost on Baby. And we had our theater. And so Mike said, we're going. Called me up. He said, we're... In fact, it was amazing. We had an ad meeting on a Friday after the, the notices. And there were some good reviews and some mixed reviews and some. But not until Monday, and Newsweek and Time emerged, calling it an American masterpiece and comparing it to Peer Gint and um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, no long days during tonight comparisons. We were getting you know, Peer Gint and Hamlet, and, you know, Oedipus Rex and things like that. You know. So suddenly, Mike's, Mike's attitude of the Friday the Bible. Meeting, Mike is terrible in Friday meetings, by the way. Yeah. Friday is the end of the week, and he wants to go to the country and be with his kids, and he does. And he said, listen, we're going to leave it at the promenade. Leave me alone. There's no way we're moving this play. I'm leaving. And I came back on Monday. He read Time in Newsweek, and he said, yeah, we're going to the Barrymore. <laughs> and so I said, no, no, we're not going to We're staying right where we are. And so then he began to work on me for a week. And finally, I was forced to go to the Barrymore and gross $250,000. <laughs> Did uh, Claudia Cassidy cover it in Chicago? Claudia Cassidy? Right on the play or mm. reviewer of Chicago. Could yeah, have. not to my she, She's the most famous but she's reviewer. But she's she might have seen the play. No, but I know. But she does. Occasionally, you know, she's 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 still see something. Two Chicago wondered. notices. There were others in smaller newspapers that, mm. but the two major notices that are, that yeah. appeared were by Glenn Asaizi <coughs> and um, right. Richard Christensen. Yeah, what is your duty now that the play is running? for weeks and months, maybe years, what do you do? Well, it depends, of course, you know, show to show. On, on Hurley Burley, Mike is still very much involved in the show. Um, I, of course, put in all the understudies into the show and I'm responsible for their performances when they have to go on. And when new actors come into the show, then I'll rehearse them. Um, of course, with, when you have Candace Bergen coming into the show, um, she wants to work with Mike, and rightly so. So Mike mostly rehearsed Candace into the show and put her in. I did a lot of work with Ron Silver when he came in, and then, of course, Mike came in at the very end. But I'm the one who's, I'm the one who's there. I'm responsible for the performance night to night. I note the show almost every day. I watch it four times a week, and then I call the show. I call the light cues and things four times a week as well. So I'm always noting the show and making sure that the pace is proper. It's sort of quality control at this point. Then how can you take another job? Well, I'm going to. Uh, <laughs> we're doing a workshop in Don't January. Ask him that question. <laughs> doing both for a while. Yeah. But also, after. A lot of people doing two things at once, or three things at once. Could you go with the difference in costs, an overall picture of. We know about uh, Chicago, but now the promenade and two here. Can you break down cost, everybody's percentage on this? The difference between what it costs to be off Broadway, what it costs to do it on Broadway? Well, the cost to the, the cost to put it on off Broadway was was four hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars, and the royalty structure was pretty much the same off Broadway as it was on Broadway. Although the the um, to move it, I don't know. I mean, I leave it up to you, Fred. Do you want to talk about what the you know what the actual dollars were to move the show? Well, we capitalized it at four hundred thousand for the promenade. We spent approximately two hundred and sixty thousand of that of those dollars. Um, we then spent approximately $300,000 to move the play from the promenade to the Barrymore. Uh, 150000 or so was what we had made in the first, in our six or eight weeks playing at the promenade, and we received a loan from the Schubert organization, kind, kind of them, actually, to a very unusual loan in a sense because it was a no-recourse loan. And in other words, if for some reason we didn't do business, they wouldn't get their money back. But, they had a feeling the play would do business. Um, something 
tells me that Bernie Jacobs would not have given us $150,000 if he thought the play wouldn't do business. <laughs> but I, I can't say that for sure. <laughs> Since the Schubert Organization, by the way, is the only Broadway theater operating company that has an interest, in my opinion, in American plays on Broadway. And without them, um, we'd have the American play on Broadway would be dead, which it virtually is now. It's, it is. No, the numbers, I mean, right. the, unless someone does something about it fast, there is going to be no American plays produced on Would Broadway. Would you agree with that? Yes, I'm, I'm afraid. Compare the 1948 true. season where there are at least 50 well, look at American season. plays produced on Broadway to four last season. I produced two this season alone, and that's about it. There's a loan together. That's the third. We're, six, we're four months into the season. But anyway, that's a whole different that's discussion. A different thing. Yeah. But, but the Schubert's are the only ones who will put their money and their theaters where their mouths are. And that's a very important factor in, the, in this business. And with all the criticism they get, the fact is that they'll sit there and they'll take a tough play like Ma Rainey's Black Bottom or Hurley Burley, despite the stars, and they'll say, we'll give you our best theaters and we'll give you money. Anyway, they gave us the dough. We had $300,000. We moved it. The difference in not, it cost about thirty-five dollars or $40,000 plus the profit pool to operate weekly off-Broadway. And it costs in the vicinity of ninety dollars to $100,000 plus the profit pool on Broadway. So roughly double. Roughly double. double. That's correct. But the maximum gross is tripled. That's correct. The what? The, gross. the maximum gross in the theater is triple on Broadway what it was off Broadway. About so 90 to 260. Something. I might also add that uh, the advertising rates uh, are substantially higher for Broadway shows than they are for off Broadway shows, which is another reason why that operating space? budget goes up. The ABC the listing, the line rate for um, <coughs> print advertising. And of course, uh, you're more likely to spend because the gross is tripled. Uh, you're more likely to spend money on uh, television commercial production and airing it uh, because you're making so much more money. So what is the average cost of a television commercial on a straight play? Well, it depends. Sometimes we're asked for a $10,000 idea. Sometimes we're asked for a $100,000 <laughs> idea. Um, the hard part is when uh, we have expensive ideas that have to be done within the, the realms of a, a, a risky budget. But I'd say... A, a, $35,000 is a good estimate for a straight play. Um, uh, it, it could even accommodate a musical if uh, the creative idea does not include shooting inside the theater, which is really what jacks up the cost. Well, that's the cost of production you're talking about now, isn't yes. it? Yes. Well, the to make the commercial is $35,000, let's say, for a straight play, although we're about to make one for Hurley Burley that uh, will not cost that much, but uh, it's so brilliant that we just have to make it for even less money <laughs> than that. What about your actors? Do they, is there a difference in their salary for? Not really. They're, they're very close. With the exception of Cynthia. We, although now that Cynthia is represented by Sam Cohn, she, her salary keeps creeping up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, give the kid another thousand dollars. Cynthia, by the way, is doing two plays at the same time. Yes. She's in The Real Thing, which is Mike Nichols' production, and she leaves that at the, at the end of the first act, I think. She does us first, actually. Well, she does the first act of Hurley Burley first. Oh, the first act of Hurley Burley. Then she rushes over and does the real thing. So she's appearing in two plays on Broadway at the same time. Right. Well, then she comes back to do Hurley Burley again in the third act. Yeah. Yes, yeah. which is not unique because I think a former session of the American Theatre Wing, I told a Barnard Hughes who appeared in an off-Broadway production of Hogan's Goat with Faye Dunaway many years ago at the American Place Theatre. And the curtain went up at 7 o'clock he was also understudying Henry Fonda in Generation of the Morosco Theater. At 8 o'clock, they told him that Henry Fonda was ill and he'd have to play the performance that night. He left 
Hogan's Goat, rushed over to the Roscoe Theater, played the lead in Generation, and got rave notices for both. Nice <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. But Cynthia Nixon's 18. <laughs> See, that makes it easier. Yeah. Where does she take bows? Both, both shows. Both, both, both shows. shows. Yeah. The real thing ends sooner, and then she can go back to her. Every, everything, everything ends sooner. <laughs> See, it plays on the West Coast. That is. Now, if this play would run for a year or so, uh, what would your task be a year from now? What, what would you be doing to keep things out of going? How does that Well, as work? long as they keep casting it the way that yeah. I, they yeah. do, yeah. I have to answer the phone, actually. Yeah. Um, it is that, though. It's, it's uh, continuing. It's maintenance work of a certain kind. Yeah. And in this instance, it's almost as easy as opening the show was, mm -hmm. because there's still great interest in those performers and seeing them live. And they'll always be interested in the play. You know, so I think the play, as I say, it's possible in the last year that, uh, you know, Fred may think of something else to do, like mm -hmm. cast everybody under 20 years old or something. <laughs> yeah. We're going to do an all-black All-black cast. Right. Yes, really. yeah. right. <laughs> what tends to evolve more than, than the publicity, because the play is a given, is uh, the advertising approach, because people, because you get saturation with advertising. You can never have enough stories in the New York Times. That's but, right. but you can get tired of looking at the same ad or seeing the same commercial on the television or the, hearing the same commercial on the radio. So uh, a year from now, probably, Fred will be bothering us for uh, you know, some ideas about how to sell the show yeah. in a way that um, hasn't been uh, explored yet. A lot of women are really angry at, at the, what they see as the most misogynistic play that has ever been. Uh, now, do you have to deal with that, or do you feel that that's something that, mm -hmm. you could, uh, that is your bailiwick? Yeah. Yes, it's, I was just saying to Jay that what's interesting is that in our position, we are, we are in a, Fred's right, we are in a sense vassals. It's also more like being um, in the, at best, in the Henry Kissinger role, because we have occasion to uh, speak to critics and editors and people who judge this work um, in their unguarded moments where they speak very freely about it. But what's also interesting is that we get to respond. Um, and a great many of the women that I've spoken to who were prepared to be offended by the material and the view of women in the play have in fact called afterward. And we've had discussions about the fact that the women in the play are appropriate to the men in the play. And there are a surprising amount of women who also see it that way. Now, whether they have access to um, a way to express their views in, in ways that would ultimately be made public is another question. But I think it's important that this dialogue is going on. They do call up and discuss the play. Sometimes in relation to new works that we're doing, I mean, we talk to these people a lot because we work together a lot. But I find that healthy. I think it's great. I mean, I think everybody is entitled to their own opinion. It's just that I would like to have them see the piece um, as objectively as possible, at least, or at least consider what is appropriate about the piece and not simply lay their own prejudices on it and not let it speak for itself, yep. you know? So my job is to try to clear that away if I can. More than in most plays, I think, uh, women who don't like to play blame Rabe as if th these were yes, his ideas. You know, they they do. Angry at Rabe. Yes. I hate that man, mm -hmm. they say. Mm -hmm. Not allowing uh, any possibility that he has invented characters who, as you say, women are worthy of the men. Uh, mm -hmm. But, but mm -hmm. uh, instead of that, it's very, very personal and mm -hmm. vehement. But see, I think that's exciting, too, well, that's because if the play yeah. weren't interesting, it's not a play you feel indifferent about. Oh, that's God the no. thing. 
And that's part of what's beautiful about the theater or any work like that. It yeah. moves you, even if it moves you in a, in a negative direction. How important are the talk shows to get to a people? Well, television reaches so many people mm -hmm. that it's very important. But it's equally important that the actors who go on be prepared to deal with the medium. Um, the actors themselves, through the conversations that they've had in the period of time that they've worked on it with the author, with Fred, with Peter, have come up with their own ways to express their opinion about the play and also to be able to field those questions because you know that in a very short amount of time if an interviewer asks you a negative question they can set you up so that any answer you give is the wrong one. <laughs> Our actors are adept at they've had a lot of experience doing interviews thank heaven and and they're bright people and they can handle that. Um, they are adept they sort of dream actors and a whole dream adaption. but is there a commitment for uh, performers to appear on talk shows? Do you, is that almost an unwritten part of a contract that they are, uh, they have a responsibility to do publicity in that sense? I think it's, it's understood, yes, but when it comes down to it, it, it depends, as I say, because I think actors are very special people. Some people are not comfortable under those circumstances, and it's not good for the play to put an actor who isn't comfortable in that position. Um, in this instance, too, Bill Hurt told me himself that he felt that his role was so taxing that to do eight performances a week of it was sufficient in a sense that the role spoke for itself and he didn't want to be put in a position of justifying David Rabe's work. He felt the play speaks for itself and if you want to know what Bill Hurt sees of it, you come and see how he performs in the play, which is a position I certainly respect. It's a very good statement. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of questions now that are going to be asked and I hope that uh, much of this will be answered by you, and we'll continue with the, our working in the theater seminars right now. Would you like to ask your first question? Yes, my name is Lisa Eisenberg, and I'd like you to discuss, this is a general question, how profit pooling, choice of theater, and financing in general affects your setting of the ticket prices, and once you do that, how you handle discount ticket policies, if you do that at all. I guess that's you, Fred. Well, I, I don't know if the profit pool is much to do with this, the setting of ticket prices, really. I, I think that there's always an attempt on my part, um, and I think on most producers' part, to find a price that's fair and that can, of course, in a sense, the profit pool affects us because at least we can see a lower nut, so we might be able to reduce the prices a bit. Um, but there are certain now acceptable prices in the industry, and that's where we're usually falling. Uh, in the case of Hurley Burley, it's a, the top ticket is thirty-seven fifty, although it occasionally appears at the half-price booth, and you can get it for whatever that is, eighteen dollars, and sit in the orchestra if there's an orchestra seat available. Ma Rainey is at thirty-five dollars, which makes it one of the cheaper top tickets on Broadway now. I mean, these are amazing figures when you consider that on the first play I did, you could sit in the orchestra and see Al Pacino for fifteen dollars, and that's only eight years ago, yeah, uh, seven years ago. Um, the fact that the theater ticket has gone to 37.50 and the movie ticket has gone from like 2.50 to $5 is one of the big problems in our industry. Um, the fact is you have to spend $100 to, to take two or three people to the theater now. And if you had dinner and parking onto that, it's in some cases a week's salary. Don't it's say a serious, serious problem. <laughs> <laughs> but but on, the, on the other hand, uh, tickets to Ma Rainey were being offered by TDF yes. as group rate yes. in addition to half price. And it was my impression that Mike Nichols had raised the uh, top price from 35 to 37.50 on the real thing after it was a success, and he thought he would be able to do that with its popularity. 
Where are those decisions? Lisa. Uh, or you could have gotten 40 or 4750 for the real thing. Yes, I mean, the there was a there was a, a meeting uh, uh, in our offices right after the real thing opened where that was discussed, and uh, the the price of the price of 3750, although um, it sounds indefensible, and I make no motion to try to defend it, it was the lowest of the prices that were mentioned uh, uh, once the reviews for the show came out. I wasn't criticizing the choice. I was interested in how the ticket price is looked at as relation to the breakdown of the financing and where those figures come from. And if you're looking at fair market value or you're looking from zero-based budgeting, from what it costs to produce, how many tickets you have, how many seats, and so forth, that's all. You should arrive at a, fi a basic figure of 60%. In other words, if you're not at 60% of, and it should be lower, frankly, of what you can gross. Mm -hmm. So on Hurley-Burley, our nuts are around 100,000. We can gross around 260 with that ticket price. Then you can see some light at the end of the tunnel in terms of getting your money back. That's really where the price comes from. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. C.A.R. Smith, character actor, of course. <laughs> I was wondering if it mightn't be a wonderful teaching machine for American playwrights, for instance, and very interesting for everyone else, even if it had to be sold in a shopping bag, to get published a 350-page version, first writing of the play, and the later version, the writing version, and let any person who reads it work out, well, listen, this is a play that couldn't be cut, but it was cut. Now, maybe I'd better look at mine again and see if I can't spruce it up or whatever. I don't think that need really be responded to, but perhaps Mr. Gill can keep everyone thinking about, gee, wouldn't this be good as a full version and now version? There's your next article. Thank you very much. See you saw a log, the hurly burly log. Hello, I'm John Berg. I have a question for Fred. When everything is either going sideways or completely flying apart, um, what is it that keeps you at it, or what do you tell yourself late at night to go ahead and, and continue working on a project the next day? <laughs> the money, the parties. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the glamour of being in Chicago when it's 20 below zero. <laughs> listening to Mike Nichols and David Ray. You know. No, I, I, I have, a, very briefly, a commitment, and I'm proud to say it, actually, to the American theater. And um, I only produce plays by American playwrights, and I feel kind of lonely in that because very few people are doing it. And I think that, we, that that's what keeps me going. When we were doing this play in Chicago, it was a great play by a great American playwright. Um, Maureen is a great play by a new great American playwright. And even when they turn out to be mediocre plays by mediocre American players, at least they're ours. And if um, we could keep the Royal Shakespeare Company out of here for two or three years <laughs> and do some more of our plays, then I, well, I think change the way we look at the theater. I disagree with you, but I think there's room for both. <laughs> and I think a healthy theater would have the Royal Shakespeare come over here. We send a lot of our plays over to London. The London season is practically... I would think 75% American plays. Well, of course, because they're better. Who <laughs> <laughs> are they, then? They're there. They're just not being produced. Ms. Eisenberg's question before, may I just interrupt? And, and, and You didn't fully answer how the structure comes about for the price of a ticket on Broadway. Is that the theater prices the ticket? Do you look at your your sheet and say, well, we have to get this much. They're almost all, it's almost like a, a combine. Almost all ticket prices are the same. Well, there's, there's a reason. A very because small of, percentage. Of that so percentage. It, is, it is the theater that prices the ticket. The theater and, and the producer together, but you arrive at, at a 
a pricing system based on what you can gross against what it costs. If all the parties in the world were available to you and you had all the money, could you say, I'm going to in the Barrymore Theater, I don't care about uh, how much it costs, I'm going to have a $20 ticket so that everybody can go to dinner and, and would, go to the theater? Isn't it accepted would you trade be permitted practice? to do that? Isn't it accepted yes, trade oh, yes, practice? Of of, the prices of all tickets in Broadway are in the area of thirty-seven fifty. Thirty-five or forty dollars. It's very much like musical. It's very much like a visit to a doctor. If if uh, if a doctor has a, a thirty-five dollar charge for a, an office visit, and the doctor down the hall charges twenty-five dollars, there somehow is a perception that not that the doctor uh, who has a twenty-five dollar visit is more attractive, but somehow there's something wrong with him because he charges less money. <laughs> I don't agree. No, well, but but uh, but that's perceived on Broadway anyway. That if you drop your ticket price too low, they'll think that you're desperate for business and they won't want to see your show. It doesn't. If they don't want to see it, they don't come anyway. Even if it's yeah, right. And if they do want to see it, they'll pay what they have to sure. pay in order to get in. Cats is in its and, third and also, year sells out every performance. I think that the producer, when he puts it on the half price ticket place, uh, makes enough money out of it. If, if it was only $20 a ticket, he'd only be getting $10. It wouldn't help him very much. But if he's getting 40 and half price is 20 he gets something like to help the gross. I'd like to get rid of the, the half-price ticket booth. <coughs> you would? Oh, yeah. If, if, I could get, if we could get rid of the half-price ticket booth, you can do that. We can reduce the, the price of tickets could come down. Because, of course, the higher the ticket price, the higher the discount ticket price. Because that's yeah. what producers are looking at. They're looking at selling in, in, in that, the booth. That's what I mean. Let's go a little bit further on that. They're looking at selling. I'd like to get rid of it. In the court theater, we have, a, we have a balcony. And now, for some reason, people don't want to sit in the balcony anymore. But the balcony is a nice place to watch a play, at least yeah. for me. You can hear every word. We could sell those balcony seats for a reasonable sum of money, $10, $12. We could do our own discount system per play. That, doesn't mean, that means, of course, you still wouldn't be able to get a cat's ticket for $10 or $20. But they, you know, they're not at the booth anyway. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and maybe you wouldn't get a hurly-burly ticket, or, or you'd have to sit in the mezzanine. But the fact of the matter is the theaters are designed to have discounts in the theaters. And we could do our own discounts. We could do TDF. We could do our own groups. We wouldn't need to say we have to have a $35 ticket, because if we have a $30 ticket, we only get 15 from the booth. Mm -hmm. I think the booth should be taken away, in my opinion. I don't, people think, disagree with I don't think it works <laughs> that way, because I think supply and demand. If people want to see the show, they'll pay the $37.50. They'll pay $50 for cats. If they don't want to see it, they might go. There are, there's a bigger audience that can afford $25 or 15 I think the producers are not as unrealistic. I think they're going to lower the price of tickets because they can affect the saving by not selling them at the half-price booth. I think the half-price booth helps some shows sustain itself when they're on the way out. Yeah. I don't think the half-price booth has sustained any show. Well, I know I when, I was, a kid, when I was a kid growing up, they had Gray's Drugstore. <laughs> And you could go there and get a ticket, a dollar ten ticket, fifty-five cents, or a two twenty ticket for a dollar ten. And I saw a lot of shows I wouldn't have seen without that benefit. After, especially after the shows run for a while, the prices would come down. But I think there are a lot of people who love theater, witness those long lines waiting at the yeah. tickets booth <coughs> on Forty Seventh Street, sure. and those people would be denied going to the theater. They wouldn't see Hurley Burley at thirty-seven fifty, but they will see it at eighteen seventy-five or whatever. They could see it for eighteen dollars and sit in the mezzanine. And they well, will. we could see it in our own discount. Our own, each producer in each theater would discount as they saw fit. And I, I don't feel think strongly I doubt that. that we would offer a lower ticket price. I doubt that they would do that. They never have in the past. No. But to answer the other question, <laughs> the movies have never done it. A $5 ticket for any movie, E.T. doesn't charge more. It charges the same price you would for places in the heart. Or any of the tickets are a standard price. Broadway prices have been fixed. I think the Schubert's have fixed it. I think the Needlelanders have. It's become traditional practice. And the supply, the, the supply and demand 
that determines what kind of grosses they do in the box office. If the public wants to see a show, they will pay the money. If they don't want to, they can't give it away. Now, but you have to educate an audience to go back up into the balcony again. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's important. What would you come on? Sir, my name is Diana Fairbanks, and I have a question for Mr. Harris. Um, how specifically, if you can tell me, are the profits in the pool distributed in terms of percentages? Not necessarily for Hurley Burley, but if you could give us a typical breakdown of how those, those, uh, the profit pool is distributed. Well, um, I don't I, Roughly speaking, the, the profits after the theater has its percentage, which is a slightly separate deal, but they have a profit pool, and the actors have their percentage. The rest of the profits above the break-even are split evenly between the backers and all the royalty participants. And the royalty participants are the playwright, David Rave, the director, the producers, the Goodman Theater, and the designers. And they split it up in the proportion, uh, the royalty participants split up their share, their half, in the proportion of the, uh, that the royalties are that they get. So that David Rave is, is assigned 10 points in that profit pool. And the producers are assigned the producer's royalty. You add them, add them all up and you come to a number like 20-something. And then you just do a fraction. So that David Rave would get 10 over 20-something times half the profit pool. So essentially, it's the same idea as before with royalty cut-ups. It's just timing that's involved here that makes it so much more attractive. I mean, they, the people would get in the old royalty system, it's still essentially the, the playwright's getting 10 points. But it's now we've moved it to timing and how that's timed into the, to where the money comes out that makes this a much more attractive Well, what makes it attractive <coughs> is that really the work is thought out in advance. And you don't wait until you get into a situation where the play is in trouble and the producer is, is under a great deal of pressure either to effectuate waivers or deferments from a lot of individuals in a very short period of time when and frequently there are personality clashes at that point and arguments at that point where, where a director might say, I will waive 50% of my royalties unless the playwright waives 75% of his royalties. Or, or a designer may say, I won't waive at all unless the playwright's getting nothing because I don't get any share of the movie rights. And we're doing this so that the playwright can keep his play going and he's the one that ought to be waving because if the play stays on Broadway, the chances are the movie rights will be sold and the only one that's going to benefit from that will be the playwright. The director won't necessarily benefit and the designers won't necessarily benefit. So you, get in, you can get into a lot of arguments at that point and there is a, a good deal of reluctance to commit to anything. If you've done it in advance, which is really what a profit pool <coughs> is, then everything is, everyone is treated equally. Nobody can really complain and say, I'm being singled out for some different kind of treatment because each person knows what his royalty is, they know what the total number is, and they know what their proportion is. And they know they'll be treated the same as everybody else. So if the show's not doing well and there's no profit, nobody will get paid. And if the show's, the better the show does, the more everybody gets paid and they all stay in the same relative position. Thank you. Why don't you come up? Uh, Keith McCarthy, I have a question for Mr. Harris. You answered the first part of my question. Uh, and the second part, also having to do with the profit pool. 
was that in terms of ancillary uh, activities, cable television, uh, selling of film rights, foreign productions, and road companies, let's say, in the United States, does that original profit pool cover that, or is that a separate deal, or I don't know. Uh, the, the certain ancillary rights um, are not affected by the profit pool at all. The motion, motion picture rights are really in the hands of the playwright, and the production, the producer and the backers share in the motion picture sale according to a, a, a long-standing 60-40 formula. They also share in foreign productions the same way. The, the director, designers traditionally do not share in those rights, in those subsidiary rights. The only rights they share in are, are productions of the play under the management of the producer, which really means United States and Canada and sometimes, not, not even, sometimes England, but, but they can be new designers for England. Um, to the extent that there are road companies, it's a question of negotiation. Um, if you can get everyone to agree that not only the off-Broadway, but a possible Broadway production, and then productions on the West Coast and bus and truck productions around the country, a first-class tour, will still be on the profit pool, that's certainly to the, to the playwright's benefit, to the producer's benefit, and the backer's benefit. Um, and we, we, we did do just that one in this more case. question. Yeah. Would you make it brief? My name's Lisa Rhodes, and this is addressed to Xander Manning. What happens if the production does not break even to cover production cost? Do you always have a sponsor for your show? Well, when a show closes, first of all, the press agents is out of work as the actors are. Um, I don't think that question's really properly addressed to me. I think it's probably a question for Fred as the producer, because if a play's not breaking even, depending on how long it can afford to operate at a loss, it closes. I see. Just, okay, thank you. I, I'm afraid <laughs> that I have to interrupt you, and I, I have to do this at the most interesting and exciting time at each session. But uh, there comes a time when it, there just never is enough, never enough time to say all the things, to answer all the questions, but uh, we have to bring it to an end. And I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theatre Wing, and this is but one of the programs of the all-year program that the American Theatre Wing has. Uh, when you think of the Wing, most people think of the Tonys, but that's just a, a, a part of our year-round efforts. We talked about the balcony that isn't filled and, and getting people up to climb the stairs as most of us did when we were young. Our Saturday Theatre for Children program addresses itself just to that because on Saturday mornings at a very early elementary school age, the children line up and buy a ticket. They make a commitment to see professional theatre that has been supported by the wing and brought into their schools. This is an important part of learning to go to the theatre as an, an experience that you need to have, not just for the big birthday, not just for the anniversary, and not for the buyer for out of town. It also makes them a discriminate audience that will go to see good theater, good American theater, as well as good British theater. They like the theater. And this is what we're trying to do, and I think we've succeeded in these young people coming back in and being ticket buyers. Another program is the hospital program. And that, again, brings live professional theater into schools and into hospitals. And then these seminars, which is perhaps one of the most important things that the wing could do or anyone else. And it's unique in being able to call upon 
the talent that we have here. And uh, we've had designers and, and, and directors and composers and playwrights and, and all the people that make up working in the theater. And to today's panel, which are the people that have gone into Hurley Burley, that exciting new production on Broadway, and have told us what it is and how much work went into it, each one's responsibility. My very, very grateful thanks to all of you for being part of the American Theatre Wing seminars. Thank you indeed. Come again. Thank you.